Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. I've just, I've always been like an advocate for not criminalizing gang members because we they are all and we are all victims of PTSD. I've had someone explain, like one of my friends was saying to me, but I, I'm a soldier the same way a, a real soldier is in the army and they have to go to war and they come back with PTSD and potentially get help, whereas we're not getting any help. We have PTSD. We're, where do we go for this help? And, you know, people say about violence on the streets, but you know, hurt people, hurt people. Danielle was a county lines dealer before it was even termed county lines. She was at the forefront of that new industry. She saw things that were unimaginable. She's had things done to her that are unimaginable. This is Top Girl, an incredible new book that you definitely need to read. You need to hear Danielle's story. This is like no other insight you could possibly get into the drug trade. So let's get on with this. This is Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distractions Pieces Network. Talk to you about ACAST in association with UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking Top Girl an amazing new book please go out and read it we barely scratched the surface in this podcast there's so much more detail that we could have talked about we're joined by danielle herself the person that told this story is her story it's her life and what a life she's had she was on county lines before it was county lines she's seen the absolute worst of society but also the best in in her own words she'll you know she's had an interesting life but yeah, there's some details as well that must have been incredibly hard to tell. So that's why you need to read the book. So thank you so much, Danielle, for your honesty, your eloquence, your bravery, everything. Thank you so much for what you bring to this discussion. And thank you to Robin Averley, who is the ghostwriter of this book. He is a journalist and author. He has written for Vice, The Sun, and also some publications which he mentions in this podcast as well, which I think is quite interesting. So thank you both of you for, for what you did for this podcast. And Quick caveat from me, I've got a cold during this podcast, so 
please excuse the snuffly tones from me. Find us on all the usual social media channels at UK Leap on Twitter, Facebook, blah, 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 you know the score. So let's get straight on with this. This top girl. Wow, what a story. Right, so I'm, I'm joined by Danielle and Robin, who have written the most incredible book. And I do say that genuinely because I read this really quickly and it just absolutely captivated me. It was just incredible to read this story of Danielle's. It's called Top Girl. And I, if it's all right with you two, I want to start chronologically. So Danielle, firstly, thank you so much for writing this book because it is just so, so crucial, moving and just eloquent as well. But it, I love the way it started because it's, I, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but the the overriding premise of the, the start of the book is you were taught respect for the police weren't you that it was it was in your culture and in your background that the police had a level of respect uh, community relation um so can you give me a bit of background on on your background both in terms of how you grew up uh and your relationship with the community but also with the police um my relationship with my community was always very strong um, and I think it is, I'm, I can't speak for any other areas of England, but especially like inner city London, the community feel, especially in the 90s, was very strong. You know, we all knew each other. It was like an open door policy in our estate. You know, everyone's door was kind of open. Everyone knew each other. There was none of that kind of, you know, don't go outside sort of thing. We were encouraged to go outside and be kids and and play. Um with the police, they were always, again, it was always a factor in my childhood, I think because of where I lived. The police were always very visible, like I've never not known them or seen them around. As a very young child, it was always, my mum would say hi to them, hello, hello, and they'd say hello, and you know, that was quite normal. And I had respect in the sense of, you know, respect the older generation and like people working and things like that. So yeah, I didn't have any interactions with them per se until I got slightly older, but there was a, a level of respect there. Yeah. And I think that comes from not just my culture, but also where we grew up, we just saw them around. And you mentioned that you come from London. Um, it was a, it, it was a different community to how it is today. You mentioned early on in the book that, you, know, you didn't have screens per se back then. So what was that like growing up in, in the streets then? Lovely. Like I've got very fond childhood memories of just being outside, doing normal childhood things like mud pies and just playing in the little playground and having all our friends around and, you know, like having little knocks and bangs, like playing, like running around in the streets. It was just, it was just great. Like, and as the book starts, which was Rob's idea, um, which was great, it, it it starts really well. Um, that was normal. Like, those sorts of things were happening all the time. And London was a great place to live. That's what I thought. Um, it's definitely changed now. And I'm glad that I was able to sort of experience that time, which was just before the internet and before phones and things like that, where now our children are a bit more... I don't know, maybe not fearful of outside, but maybe as parents, we're a bit more fearful to let them outside. Whereas back then, it, we were encouraged. So, yeah, great childhood. 
you just mentioned Robin there, so say hello to Robin. Uh, as the ghostwriter of this book, at what point did this get flagged up for you? What point did you, you start become aware of Danielle's story? So I heard Daniel talking on, it was either a podcast or a radio back in, uh, I think it was July, summer 2019. I remember vividly driving along in the car and hearing her. I think I was playing this show through my phone, uh, through the car speaker. And I'd been looking for a county line story for some time. I'd been, because no one at that point had really done a memoir from the point of view of someone who'd been involved in county lines, either as an exploited child or as a gang member, it hadn't really been done. And I'd approached a few different charities trying to find someone who they had perhaps helped exit from a gang or someone in their care who might be willing to speak to me. And I hadn't really, I I, I tried kind of half-heartedly and I hadn't really got very far probably because they want to say, you know, they're keen to safeguard people in those kind of situations. Um, and then when I heard Danielle speaking, I knew instantly that she was going to have a story to tell. And not only that, because by that time she'd kind of been out by for maybe two and a half, three years. And I think by, by then she was able to kind of take a bit of a step back from it and she was able to, she had an opinion about what she'd been through. So she wasn't just talking about her experience she had an opinion about it and she was able to express it intelligently and as someone who's going to be spending a lot of time interviewing someone with that experience that's that's exactly what you want you don't want someone who's going to be difficult to to interview and going to kind of clam up or or not be able to express an opinion so what is your background robin i've been a journalist now so um going to make me sound really old since the early 90s oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, it, uh i think 92 93 and i came up in a very traditional way through a local newspaper for a couple of years i then went to a tabloid press agency um and then i uh, moved to brazil i went freelance in brazil for a few years back to london in 2001 and since then i've been freelancing mainly for um newspaper national newspapers and i've done a lot of stuff for the weekly women's magazines, which they 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 kind of get sniffed out a little bit. There's a little bit of snobbery about them, but they're very for people who want to do projects like this, ghostwriting projects. They're really good training ground because they teach you to kind of write in scenes. They get you very used to uh, interviewing people and then writing their experience in the first person because they're essentially a little. Each feature you do for them is like a little ghostwriting exercise. No, that's fascinating because from our side, if you want to do outreach, you've got to get to new audiences and those those demographics are exactly where you need to get. So that's, yeah. that's fantastic you write for those. Yeah. And, and I, I like the fact, coming back to you, Danielle, that we'll get into the story in a, in a moment, but the process for me, I'm really interested as well because you had to go through a lot of, a lot of your past for this book. How was it for you going through going through that? Do you know what? Since I kind of like left, I've been doing, I've I've done like public speaking here and there. And I've obviously done years of like counselling, um, cams, things like that. So in my own head, these, like my life became a story. If you know, I mean, I was just, I was just spitting it out kind of thing because I'd said it so many times and I used to get the comment a lot, oh, you speak so openly and 
you seem almost blasé about everything. And I think that's just because I have like regurgitated it over and over to like multiple agencies. But when we started the book and we were doing the interviews, it was more, it was the first time I really took it in because I'd never said it in chronological order for a start. It was always like, we want to hear the rape story or we want to hear the drug story. But where I went back right from the beginning and spoke about it in terms of years, um, it was interesting because I've always been someone that has never seen myself as a victim until I started doing the interviews for the book because it made me realise, oh my God, like this led to this and then this led to this. And it was like a clear, it all became very clear in my head, like maybe I am, maybe I was a bit of a victim in that situation more than I realised at the time. So it was interesting um, and it was, it was, it was difficult, but at the same time, I was really happy to get it off my chest and I was happy to turn it into something that might help others. So it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be emotionally. So, so having that retrospective is, and I'll get into some of the details in a moment, but it, it must have been enlightening for both of you to have that just going through that process and especially with regards to complex PTSD and things like that you make a fantastic point in the book uh, that a lot of gang members and I'm going to caveat that with you gang members uh, which we'll get back to uh, a lot of gang members do suffer pe from complex PTSD and, and, and lots of other variants can, can you explain a little bit about that I've just I've always been like an advocate for not criminalizing gang members because we they are all and we are all victims of PTSD. I've had someone explain, like one of my friends was saying to me, but I, I'm a soldier the same way a, a real soldier is in the army and they have to go to war and they come back with PTSD and potentially get help, whereas we're not getting any help. We have PTSD. We're, where do we go for this help? And, you know, people say about violence on the streets, but you know, hurt people hurt people. And it's not all about, we're, you know, people are being criminal because they want to be. It's, there's a lot of hurt people out there and especially hurt men um, and they don't know where to turn. So, yeah, I've, I've had multiple men cry and break down and say they can't cope. And it's really, it's hard to see. Uh, and the reason I caveated the gang member aspect is because you make it quite clear that it, it isn't as simple as that. You know, the, there's tribalism that goes with with being raised on the streets, but to just lump it in to being a gang culture is, is far more complex than that. So can you give a little bit of explanation on that? Yeah, I mean, I never... We used to, I never saw myself as a gang member. I saw myself as a part of a community, Obviously, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're being labelled a gang, you are going to own that. So, yeah, we will take ownership of that and we will say we're a gang and we will call ourselves a name and things like that because that's been pushed onto us. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of hype around this thing of being initiated into a gang and things like that. I have always said I've never experienced that. and But one thing I would say is that not all gangs operate the same across London or England. So in the particular gang I was associated with, there was no 
such thing as like an initiation ceremony. Um, yeah, so I think gang, I get it. Like technically, if you look it up in the dictionary, we are a gang. We have, it's a group of people who have a common interest and that is true. So I can understand why that sort of narrative has been placed on people. But me, I didn't see myself as a gang member. And, and just rolling back a little bit, Robin, uh, the process of writing for you, I can only imagine what it was like because being a reader, you can't help but get drawn into these experiences and just, yeah, it, it's it's both enlightening humour at many times, but also just absolute, you know, the, the rawest of emotion that goes with this book as well. What was it like for you hearing the stories and having to put that down on paper? Well... I mean, I'll be honest, I don't want to sound like the great I am, but it, it didn't feel like a challenge. And that's mainly due to Danielle being, you know, so strong in interviews. Um, I mean, I've, I do come at this with years of experience. So I'm very used to sitting down with people who've been through very traumatic experiences, you know, people who've lost loved ones to, to murder victims of sexual offences. So in terms of that kind of emotional challenge, that's something I'm I'm quite used to. But Danielle always gave, gave very good interviews and uh, and very quickly got 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 the grasp of you know how much how much the kind of level of detail that we were going to need to go into because it is a level above you know what I'm used to writing, say for magazines or newspapers, to get that kind of colour and that emotion. You always go in, you always want an an emotional response to. To something that's happened so you know the question is always you know how did that make you feel and you know Dan danielle was always able to articulate that and so it made the job very easy i i i, I totted up we did about 35 40 hours worth of interviews um but actually the writing process once we sold the book it was it was quite quick really it was we started in april and it was done by um the end of July, I think it was. So it was, yeah, April, May, June, July. It was four months. Yeah. And what what were those sessions like when you was interviewing Danielle? Was 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 it as intimate as what I can imagine going through the information that you must have had to have exchanged? Yeah, of course. It was. I mean, it was like we we're talking we're talking now. Um, and again, Danielle was very always very open about uh, about the experience and. It was obvious that she'd talked about it before, so that helped. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, it, it was difficult subject matter, and she handled it really well. So, one of the the hooks of the book is that you're a grammar school person that had high grades, high level of intelligence, that then took the route that you did, which we'll get into in a moment. So, what was that like being? Uh, you know, in, in that process of going to a grammar school, you, you compare it to Hogwarts, which is just brilliant because I've got I've got places around me that are exactly like that. Uh, so, so coming through those those doors of you know moneyed students and and people that weren't from your background, uh, what was that like? It was it was really difficult. Um, I think when you're around people that we we just weren't living the same life. Me and my friends at school we were not living the same life. Like I described in the book about one girl getting a, a horse as a Christmas present or a pony. And I was just like, like I said in the book, I didn't believe her. I was like, I, do, I, do, I just don't believe you because in my world, that is not a thing that happens. 
Um, I found it very difficult to fit in. And I think when it's, you know, it's great. Every parent wants their kid to go to, you know, a, a great school and get an education. Like, that's a huge privilege. And I'm I'm happy in that sense that I got such a good basis of education. But for me, like, travelling so far to get to school was also another barrier to me making friends. I had no school friends in my area. Um, and I think looking back now, it it kind of actually did push me down that route a little bit more than maybe if I'd just gone to a local state because I was actively trying to rebel because I was like, I don't want to be like these girls. I don't want to be in this environment. I don't enjoy it. And so I think, yeah, it did subconsciously push me maybe the wrong way. And you, you admit in the book that you didn't try that hard within the schooling process, but your grades were still exceptional. You know, you still did really well. So have you, have you always been aware, this, this could be a really stupid question, but if you always had aware that you've had a, a high-functioning intelligence? Um, <laughs> it's so weird to, like, compliment yourself. Like, no, not really. Like, I've never thought I was anything, you know, like, in, I'd never thought I was the most intelligent. I wasn't the most intelligent. I wasn't top of the class. But I think it shows that I do, you know, I've, I've got quite a focused mind because I didn't try at all. And I still managed to get, you know, really good grades and go on to do great things. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't think I was that intelligent, but I do look back and I am I do feel grateful that I went to that school in the t in terms of just the education alone. So the process for you, as you said, it, the, the feeling like an outsider within those within the framework of that schooling system. You, you did hint at it there that it almost pushed you to to find another tribe. Uh, how much of that did provide an influence of, of what was to come? I think qu quite a lot. I mean, I think some of it came from just the background that I was from and the people that I was seeing and my original friends. Um, and then the other part did come from, you know, being in a school where it was a, a girls' school, there was a lot of bullying going on, Um and I got lumped with, like, the people that were, you know, like, grammar schools, they will accept people that didn't necessarily pass the entrance exam, but are, I don't know, they've got, like, special circumstances. I was, like, with those people, you know, the people that we weren't really meant to be here, even though I did pass the entrance exam. So I was, from the start, banded with the people that were, like, not good enough to be in this school. Um, and... It also pushed me down that route in terms of no pastoral support in the school. Maybe if they'd stepped in at the right time and done the right thing when certain things were going on in my wider world, it it may have changed my view. I mean, like I could have gone to sick form. Maybe if I'd gone to sick form there, I wouldn't have been doing what I was doing. But I chose not to go because I didn't feel like I received any support from that school, from the safeguarding to the like what they called year head of year, no support at all. From your side, Robin, one of the, the hooks of this story is that Danielle, a grammar school girl that had brilliant grades, that uh, then went on to countylise drug dealing. And that's, that's a really big shorthand hook for it. Uh, how, how, what has been the reaction when you've relayed this to, to people in the media, people in your circles? What kind of reaction have you had to this? I think it's too early to say in terms of that reaction, but I think what it does show is, you know, as Danielle said, 
it shows that this you know anyone can can be dragged into this literally anyone and and again as she said you can see a very clear chronological pathway from feeling kind of outside and uncomfortable in her own skin or with her surroundings in grammar school thinking i don't want to be here i'm going to spend time with this with this lad and and hang around with him while he's dealing weed instead and then from there kind of branching out into his wider circle of friends and and from there really becoming kind of brutalized to some extent by street life and some of the experiences that she that she saw on the street and i think with each step she kind of reached a sorry i'm talking about in the third person daniel reached a kind of a new normal of a new level of kind of normality in terms of what what she she was willing to take on and it you know with each with each step that she willing to take on more and to and to to put herself into more and more extreme situations I'm really conscious about that as well, Daniel, of talking about you as opposed to you. Yeah, because, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true that it, it, it so comes across both in, in the book, but also your presence now that, you know, you, you know exactly what you're doing. You're very, very uh, thoughtful in, in the processes that you've you've gone through, both in the, in the writing of this book. But also, I love the way that certain things have been explained, because I, I do think there are certain things that just don't get the recognition that they deserve with regards to circumstances. And um, you you make it clear that you were aware of weed dealing uh, addiction was very very clear on the streets as well. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that of what you saw in in your upbringing? Again, like as I said earlier, growing up in inner city London, it's just part of the scenery. It's just it's just normal to see nitties, as I would have called it back then, outside the bookies. Like that was just normal. Like seeing people slumped over on the floor with a like bottle in their hand, completely normal. Like I remember one day going into someone's block, um, and there it was just covered in blood. In not sorry, in the lift in the block, and it just had blood everywhere. And I remember my mum being like, "Don't touch anything! Like, do not touch anything!" And we went downstairs, and there was like a man like slumped on the side, just literally covered in blood. Just yeah. So like things like that would just it was just the scenery. It's just the backdrop of London, like. That's all I've ever known. I don't. I only talk about London because I've. Ne- I'd, I hadn't been anywhere else in my childhood. So, for me, that London life was everything I knew, and it was just. I did. It didn't even phase me at all. It was just normal. So you, you call them nitties, and it's it's a term that I've not heard before. Uh, so someone that you know that's the typical emblem of addiction. You know, someone that may have lost teeth and and dishrivelled. Um, so the fact that you were so aware of addiction at that age, how did that affect you and and the people around you? Did it did it just become something you saw? Was it just a case of, you know, that's what drugs does or that's what uh, society does? How was it handled within your psyches? Um, firstly, I just want to say that it's like, it's a very derogatory term and like I wouldn't use it now in my everyday life. But um, yeah, I think it was... I never blamed society. We always blamed drugs. Like, that was, like, very well known. Like, this is a drug addict. Um, and I think from an early age, it made me realise that it's going to sound really weird, but I'd rather sell drugs than take drugs because I'd literally seen all these people that, and it sounds horrible, but, you know, weren't clothed well, weren't taking care of themselves. 
And then with the parallel, you'd see this drug addict standing next to a drug dealer who looked great, you know, had their car parked there. So I've like from an early age, it was always sell drugs over over buy drugs, which yeah, is not great. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. What were the 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 community pillars of uh, like uh, with regards to uh, the people that were dealing drugs? Were were they the the, the stereotypical flash car, flash flash clothes, jewellery? Was that what you saw? Yeah, it was like nineties vibes. Like you know, they were wearing like Averex jackets, which was like the cool thing at the time. Um, I can't remember the watch that it was called. It was called like a Patrick something. It was like a watch that all like the boys in my area were wearing um typical like ju- like jewelry um BMW 3 series was like the car or like a Honda Civic if you had that car you were like really cool and these were the people that we were looking up to and we were actively taught to put down the drug addicts like we'd be like like if one of our friends were like going too near we'd be like stay away from the nitty and like we'd shout at them and you'd get bullied kind of if you went near them so from early there was like a pressure to to not be that basically uh, and robin for someone that's covered drug stories for as early as what you have uh, what's been the evolution like for you uh, having seen it from the early 90s to this day and age has there been a change or is it just exactly the same just different clothes I think with Danielle's, Danielle's story really defied expectations for me because I thought I was going to be coming to a story about very much about victimhood, about someone who was very, you know, like this traditional county line story that we hear about kids being coerced. And so either she, but she was, she was coerced herself or she was involved in coercing kids. And so it was very, it, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to hear that story told from the point of view of someone who was actively wanting to get involved with it yeah yeah that's a really good point actually because when I was telling my friends and colleagues about this is that there was you 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 took this route knowingly didn't you Danielle you 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 wanted to go this route so can, can we speak a little bit about that now of this is going to be a very broad question but at what point did you consciously decide, actually, this this might be for me? I think literally when I got that first, I think it was like a £50 note and I'd never seen a £50 note. And I was just like, this is the easiest thing ever. Like, why would I not do... It was like an epiphany. Like, there was no other option for me. Why wouldn't I do this? It was almost like, if you choose to do something else right now, you're just stupid because this is literally a legitimate way to make money. And from then, I mean, I wasn't like all in, like I'm going to do everything I can to sell drugs. It wasn't like that. It was just a natural progression to like where I was asking to go to country and being like, no, I need, this is something I need. However, at the time, yeah, I was very headstrong and this is what I wanted to do as a career. Looking back now... I felt like, I feel like maybe I was looking for something to distract me. And that's the reason. So, I do, you know, I hold my hands up to say, yes, I did choose this. And I don't feel like anyone, one person coerced me into this. But I do think life coerced me into that. So, so yeah, you were asking about um, 
like covering drug stories and whether 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 I thought it had changed in I don't think that that the, the rhetoric has changed because we newspapers or mainstream media are always talking the way they talk it's always demonizing uh drug dealers and drug users you know they talk about uh, you know dealing death and evil drug dealers and um and, and what something I really wanted to do with Danielle's story was to like drug dealers they just to them it's just a job and that came that came across with when speaking to Danielle it got to a point now remember she's doing this for 5 years and it really was it was it was a job there was no like higher cause behind it or anything and so i guess i wanted to show that like drug dealers are normal people too they have the normal worries and concerns about uh, family life and boyfriends and girlfriends and you know having enough money to buy presents for their kids and all uh, that everybody else does and 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 really it's, it it is just a job and they're just trying to just trying to make the way you know i think that's a, a really important point to make is that especially gets highlighted in the book that these aren't the other person that we're dealing with these are these are normal people that have had life circumstances and that the industry is there so therefore there's they're fulfilling a nation a lot of it comes with morals as well which which does get spoken about in the book and, and danielle you were doing county lines before county lines was even such a thing what was that like the processes of of what you were doing at that time um i think i started off you know with not a huge amount of knowledge maybe more knowledge than the average person but i wasn't aware of like the inner workings of a county lines operation um it was because it is that's literally what it is it's a it's a business structure and a business model and that's quite rigid that you have to stick with that um and it's the same as any other self-employed person like you've got profits to make you've got profit margins you've got losses you've got you know all of these things that you have to learn and pick up along the way and I wouldn't say like you're taught it but you are there's certain rules that you are taught and that you need to follow certain regulations and things like that and like Robin said I literally saw it as a nine to five that was not a nine to five it was 24 hours a day 365 days a year but it was my job and I took it seriously can you explain what the, the the first process that you took part in was the wrapping uh so what can you just because there will be a lot of people that have got no idea what that involves what what is that i i loved it it sounds so bad but it was literally therapeutic to me like so i would we would go to a trap house and we would ra- literally wrap up drugs for hours hours and hours and hours to the point where like your fingers are forming scabs on them because you're touching so much heroin heroin and it's just eating away at your fingers and we would just rap and like I remember everyone used to say you have the best rapping skills my rocks were always super super tight and I mentioned in the book that I took pride over that like this was my I was good at it I enjoyed doing it and it was important because wrapping is such an important part of the process because if you don't wrap those drugs correctly and you have to swallow them you could potentially really harm one of your friends you know if it's got to be banked as we would say which is like putting it inside you it's it's got to be wrapped really properly so I took it seriously 
it's it's made quite clear that you probably have got OCDs because of various different reasons. Did that play a part within your dealing process as well? Oh, the OCD thing has got so bad. Like, literally, it only sort of come out... I saw so much... Like, it wasn't necessarily from the wrapping. It was from, like, seeing unclean and unsanitary situations, which made... And being in these situations, it just made me go the opposite way. Like, I'm, I want to be very clean now. And, like... And even... I suppose it did come out a bit when, like, the wrapping up process was going on because all my pebs would be, like, in straight lines of 10. So I'd know when I've got a 1,000 because it's 10 of 10. Whereas everyone else's would be scattered around and they're trying to, like, switch, um, what's it called? Like, separate them out into thousands. Mine were already in thousands. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I think it helped a bit, but it's definitely the OCD's got a lot worse as time went on. <laughs> I think it makes complete sense. The way it's explained is that, yeah, that the processes that you saw uh, and also what you've been through as well, it just, it completely makes sense. Uh, I hold my hands up. I've got my own issues because of various different reasons, and the way that is explained in the book, Robin, it, it must have been interesting to you to to work out these these thought patterns and these these non thought patterns as well. You know, these intrinsic reasons why why certain character habits form. What was it like for you, Robin, having to listen to that and get it down in print in some sort of way and and try and do it justice? And as we both commented, not talk about. Danielle in any kind of patronising manner. It, mm. How difficult was the writing process in general? Well, again, mostly easy. I would say it was mostly easy because Danielle was very good at telling her story and relating her experience. I think um, that five years when she was in country was, I think at the beginning when we were talking about it, I was thinking this might be a little bit challenging because I think that period was... It was very intense, and I think in some respects it kind of all blurred into one long drug-dealing period. And and at the beginning it was sometimes difficult to draw out individual moments or little anecdotes that that kind of that illustrated that and, and kind of held a, held a kind of narrative drive through those five years. Um. And also, I think, again, this comes back to the fact that it was, it was kind of really just a job. I think if you, if you went to work in, say, like an abattoir for a day, the, the, you, know, you would probably remember that for the rest of your life. You would remember the sounds of the animals. You would remember the conveyor belt and the smells and all the sights. I think if you spent five years doing it and someone asked, asked you what it was like, you would probably struggle to, you know, it would just be, I worked in an abattoir. That's a really good comparison. I'm going to throw to Danielle on that point in a second, actually. But just to, to get another point of view, Robin, is that at any point you mentioned that, you know, the, the fact that you have got a background in journalism like you have, it, was did you take to bed any of this with you? Did you sit there and think at night, I can't believe what I just heard? Or or were you able to to get it all down on paper and leave it on paper? Yeah, so I think that with experience, you do learn to kind of step away from the story and to leave it on the page to some extent. And if you're dealing with quite difficult subject matter, traumatic subject matter, so if you're interviewing families of murder victims or 
survivors of historic sexual offences on a regular basis, if you weren't able to do that, I think it would just send you mad. But having said that, um, I'm sure every journalist would say there are certain stories which forever, for whatever reason, stay with them, you know, sometimes for years. I can think of one I'm working on at the moment with the family of a, a young murder victim, and we've been in touch for almost a decade now. And Danielle's story it, it is certainly one of those. You know, I can think of times when I would go to bed at night having worked late on the book and and I would lie awake either because of the emotional impact of the, the kind of stuff Daniel was talking about or because I was uh, kind of turning over a passage or a chapter in my head. And, yeah, I don't think you can fail to be moved by the power of, of Danielle's story and it's one that will, will always stay with me, I think. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So I want to ask you, Danielle, you, you were you lived this life for many, many years. Did you become acclimatised to it? The, the horrors that you saw, you know, you saw gunfights at the, the OK Corral. You saw the, the epitome of addiction and what it does to someone. You saw death round the corner at every single street. What was, oh, it's a stupid question again, but what was that like? It's very, it's, it's hard to answer it because to me, it, I just feel, and it's actually a symptom of PTSD, I feel n- no emotion. Um, and that's not because I don't care and it's not because I don't deeply, you know, feel for people that have been hurt and feel for drug addicts that can't get clean and things like this, I do. But when someone asked me how did I feel at the time, nothing is how I felt, literally nothing. And that is scary in itself because it left me, thinking I was just invincible oh well I've seen someone get killed over there I've seen this person get shot I've seen this person have acid thrown at them like and nothing 
Um, and it used to worry me in my later life, like, oh God, I'm not feeling anything. But so, yeah, it's sort of a stupid answer, but nothing. <laughs> and the monotony that um, Robin was talking about in like the time where we were, I was in country, it was true. It was hard to like pull anything out of that because it was just days on end, just rolling into each other of the same faces, the same, just the same process, the same streets, the same everything. So yeah, it just becomes a blur, literally. I think the other thing is, to some extent, because I think Danielle was quite a, a, a vanguard, really, of county lines. In some respects, in country, they had it quite easy in some ways. And this is, again, where the story kind of defied expectation because I was thinking, you know, turf wars and, you know, up gang rivals and there was going to be, like, street battles and stuff like that. And and, and when I came to ask Daniel about it, it was more... It, it, that didn't really happen. And they had... They were kind of left alone, really. And, you know, and police, to, to, for the most part, weren't really on to them. They didn't have rival gangs to struggle with. So... So yeah, so so there wasn't that kind of that level of conflict that I was perhaps ex- that, that I was expecting. Yeah, that's actually one of the points I'm going to draw upon is uh, the way that county lines. And again, you were doing this before; it's called county lines. The way the process worked, you so noticed the difference, Danielle, in between what the metropolitan police were like and to what local town police were like. You so picked up on that difference. Um, so what what are those differences? What did you see then? The, the Met Police and like, especially like robbery squad, gang unit was like, not serious police. We didn't see them as like serious police officers, but they knew exactly what we was doing. It was a cat and mouse game. And someone said to me, it's not, um, we need to be lucky every single day and they just need to be lucky on one day. And that was like our level of, like police awareness was heightened in London. Not to say it wasn't heightened in country because in country you're naturally, everything's on edge. But the country police, just no disrespect to them, but I just don't think they knew what was going on. They didn't have like a full grasp of what was going on. So it was easy for us to fly under the radar at them times. And I mean, now I would say it's not the same. I think they've got a good hold on what country county lines is and they know how to spot it a bit more now. But back then we were just literally free as birds up there. Like the police would stop us um, potentially because there was black males in the car and the area was quite a, a Caucasian area. But literally if we had our story, which was we were here to visit family and they they let us go on our way. There was no resistance from them. Can you explain, because there will be people that listen to this that don't know what county lines and code country is. So what is that process? Country, for me and for us, was just going outside of our area, London, and travelling to a countryside location. We used to specifically target rehab towns like... For instance, Bournemouth, there's a lot of rehab centres there. So that is like prime, prime location for us to go to. And the reason I personally think we were going to the countryside was because there's less police. Um, 
there's more drug addicts. Well, I wouldn't say more drug addicts, but there's more drug addicts in plain sight that are easier to get to. Um, and you, yeah, you get away from like the conflict in your in your local area. Normally, the way it works is wherever you're based in London, you would go. So, say like the South Londoners, they they may be round there. The East Londoners might go to Ipswich. The West Londoners might go to Cardiff. You know, like you're going whatever your nearest M way is. Yeah. Robin, this must have been weird for you. So when the, the pieces started moved together to you and you started realising that what County Lines is, you, you said yourself that you wanted a, a human to explain what County Lines is about. Uh, presumably, you you, you 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 found out in Danielle and that she, her story can project out to the wider uh uh, how how confident are you that we can get more of an understanding of the root causes? Not just you know, not just what county lines is, but why it happens, why people do have an enterprise that they can get to. How confident are you that we can actually start to properly understand this? I think it's absolutely essential because all the messaging really is is kind of top down messaging. It's you know stuff about policy, it's statistics. You know, there's this percentage of girls in gangs. There's this percentage of kids doing and it's all we need to hear bottom-up messages we need to hear voices like Danielle so you can you know begin to understand why and how they've they've got into it I mean uh, it's she gives Danielle gives a clear roadmap of of you know all the things to avoid all the pitfalls to avoid for for, you know kids and parents so I think it's absolutely essential. And the more voices like Daniel's we we hear, the better. I think the problem is probably not everyone is going to be as confident and as able to express what they've been through as Danielle is. Um, and that's you know partly because of her education, partly because of the fact that she's been advocating for people who've been through similar experiences. Um, so... So, yeah, we we need to hear more people like Danielle. I was just going to, like, jump on the back of that and say, like, I was speaking to someone at a work event the other day and this person, I can't say their job, but they're high up in the criminal justice world. And I'd done a little speech and she came to ask me for a picture afterwards and she wanted to speak to me. So I said, that's fine. And one of the first questions she asked me was, oh, you were in a gang. Was it a black gang? And I was like, that is the most ignorant comment I've ever heard in my, like, literally, I had to tell her about herself because I was like, I, I don't know where you've even got that message from, like, that gangs are split into colours and things like that. I don't, I never experienced that. And I told her, like, I don't have any experience of a black gang. I have an experience of a London gang. There was multiple ethnicities multiple races involved in what I was doing and it just shows that there is like a baseline of just ignorance to this problem and that is why they're never gonna they're never gonna solve it if they're not opening their minds to the truth that really nicely leads me to one of the points I wanted to make is that one of the issues that we deal with is is arbitrary stop and search you know the fact that that baby communities are absolutely I think it's around eight to times more likely at the moment um, you used you knew this at the time. You knew that that there was a lot more emphasis on baby communities and people background, um, and you kind of almost used it to your advantage, didn't you? Of 
well, let's exploit that gap. So what was that like? Being so aware of, of discrimination, but also being able to use it positively for your own gain. I wouldn't say it was me that identified that. I would say it was, say it was someone else. And they literally said, like, listen, you're white, you're a girl, you're going to be fine. And it's that has kind of been the truth ever since I've started. Like, I have been, you know, when I, when I was driving in country... They, they would look at me, the police would look at me and just assume, oh, she's a white girl. She doesn't, she's not wearing a tracksuit. She must be fine. And the reality was far from that. So I think, yeah, it's, it was, it wasn't so easy in London because I think the police there were more clued up to, it's not necessarily the colour of your skin or your ethnicity, but it's more the area that you're in. So for instance, I've got over 300 stop and search sheets, which they used to give out um, for when I was stopped. I used to get stopped sometimes twice a day, just going about my normal day. So it wasn't, yeah, the, the BAME thing was, it was great, like in terms of like using it to be undetected in country, but I wasn't able to use the white female thing so much in my area. Your your experience of the police in general, Danielle, has been extremely interesting because there's certainly some some incidents that have happened to you that you have been let down, comprehensively let down by the, by the system. Um, do you ever recover from that? Do you ever get a, a respect back for, for authority, as it were? Or how? what is your relationship now with, with services and the police? Oh, it's... It's a hard question. Like, I've still, I'm still hardwired that I don't talk to the police. I don't want police involvement. I don't think they can help me. Like, that is just hardwired in my brain. But now I do, I understand more that they do, they're just doing their job. Whereas before I would, like, I actively had a passion for, like, hatred towards the police now I don't. Like, now I, I am respectful. It's, it's funny because I actually got stopped uh, yesterday. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was fun. Um, and it makes me, like, when I got pulled, I was physically shaking because it's been a long time since I've had any dealings with the police. And I just remember how horrible it was back then. And it literally had, like, a, a physical effect on me now. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, they do... They do great work, but I think, again, there's not much understanding and the criminal justice system is against some people. So, yeah, that's sort of something I would like to change in the future if I could. We're going to start to wrap up now because you've both been really patient. But one one of the things that stands out from the book as well is that I think it's fair to say that you, you start to get a liking to the lifestyle in what the financial gain was because you you had shopping sprees you know certain clothing items mattered uh at one point you were shopping in harrods and and, and things like that the process of, of that in itself what was that like to have money in your pocket and be able to buy there was a there was a rule of three as well that you got taught by by a fellow dealer of can you buy three of something if not you can't afford it so there was some really prudent financial advice that goes on in there you know it's not just the case of like what some people imagine, oh, it's all drug dealing, it's all feral. No, these are actual people that have got morals, have got nails. The whole process is within that. that it's a broad question, but what was it like? 
Um, it was like in terms of spending money, it's great. I worked hard for that money. I was up all hours. I've slept for two hours, and this is my money. I've worked hard, and so you know, I would spend it. But I've always, because of like my background where I didn't have much, I've always been like a saver anyway. And the people that I was around actually had huge business acumen. They were great business people. So there was always like a heavy emphasis on saving your money. And I think in this drug game, everyone knows this is not for life. It's like you're an athlete. It's only for a certain time span. So you better make it, make as much as you can and invest it and do something else. So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. So even though the spending was like frivolous, maybe, I I had money and I could do that and I still had my savings. So yeah, I, I learned a lot and I bought a lot of nice things. But the truth of the matter is I didn't leave with any of those nice things, you know. So was it really worth it? <laughs> That's for people to make their mind up, I guess. And that brings me to a really good point that I'd like to make is that you decided to exit this and it was a, it was a quick decision. You know, it was a, there was a lot of building up to that decision from what I read, but, but that process of you going, right, this is it. I want to exit the, the life. When you did make that decision, it must've been difficult, surely. Yeah, it was horrific, horrific. And like, I, it was. Yeah, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Like, you have to remember, these are my family members. It's like leaving your family, um, leaving your area. This is all I've ever known. Like, I'm good at this job. This is the best I've ever done. I'm excelling at this job. And I now have to leave it and start from scratch. People don't understand. You know, it's easy to move someone out of their local area, but you're leaving them with no money, no friends, no support. So there's so many things to think about. And yeah, it was hugely difficult. And to be honest, I mean, in the book, it touches on it a little bit, but I literally went straight back to selling drugs just for someone else straight away because I I couldn't live without it. Like they used to say, oh, a drug dealer's addicted to drug dealing because they're actually addicted to the drugs. And it always used to make me think like, because we're around so many drugs are we physically addicted to drug dealing? And it always made me think, like, maybe it's that, because even after I left, I still wanted to do that for, for for quite a while. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it's just moving out of an area that's, like, a drop in the ocean of what you've got to address if you're trying to leave, like, a life of drug dealing. There's a few people that seem to have been very key in your process to move away from the lifestyle. That's both your friend, but also some of the workers that, that were actually good within the process. Uh, how, how important are those figures, whether they're mentors, friends, guiding lights? Would, would you be here without those people? Mm, no, <laughs> no, probably not. Um, I don't think at the time I had like the self-resilience to, to do all of that by myself. I think bearing in mind it was such a new problem to them and I was one of the first girls they actually helped out of the gang a gang so they were quite uneducated in it as well and you know there's definitely room for improvement in those services but just having people to I think it was just having people to talk to because they the truth is they didn't understand what I was going through they didn't understand what I needed but just having 
strong, independent women that I could look up to was great. And it showed me all I ever knew was selling drugs. So to see someone doing something else was great. And it gave me a bit of a push. How important do you think it is, Robin, that someone like Danielle educates the services? Yeah, again, absolutely essential because, you know, how can they... How can they devise a pathway out without knowing what, what you know, what what she's trying to exit or what someone like Danielle is trying to trying to get out of? You know, how can they understand that kind of family connection, that family bond? How could they understand that, say, Danielle had uh, all her finances were tied up in you know in the gang or the the community of people that she was working with? The fact that they were paying for a flat and a car, the fact that she didn't know how to, Daniel didn't know how to you know apply for benefits or be on benefits or how to live without a thousand two thousand pound a week coming in so all that yeah absolutely essential because it it, it helps them devise a pathway and helps them understand what what people who are involved in these in these gangs or in these communities of people are, are going through and what what they need to to get out of them, what they need to extricate from themselves from from that situation. So we we talk, always talk in terms of tackling county lions and, and the dealers, but is it more in terms that we need to actually be responsive, listen, and as you said, have have a holistic approach? You know, actually take lived experience as a cherished matter. Yeah, I think there's um, it's an easy way to talk about it, isn't it? to talk about. Um, what we what we refer to as the drugs problem, and you know, is it really the drugs problem? Is it, or is it, uh, you know, an austerity problem? Is it uh, an inequality problem? Is it a lack of opportunity problem? All these things. So, uh, yeah, it's an easy way out, isn't it, for authorities to to kind of blame everything on the drug problem and talk about it as though it's something isolated in its own little bubble when really it's kind of symptomatic of probably a much deeper society-wide malaise really so this is going to put you both on the spot i'm going to ask you both the same question to start with you robin first there's always a lot of call for evidence at the moment there's a there's an inquiry going on into drugs if you used to give evidence uh, of how we could do things differently what would be your what would be your testimony I think we need to hear from more people like Danielle. I think we need much better messaging from the people above us, from lawmakers, from people in positions of authority and people in positions of financial power. Because, you know, when you've got when you've got people in some of the highest offices of the land telling us all to do one thing and then doing something completely different themselves. And when they're caught, they just kind of lie and bluster the way out of it. You know, when you've got um, furlough fraudsters hoovering up four and a half billion pounds in in furlough fraud, you know, using direct made up directors' names like uh, what was it, Adolf Tuferi Hitler. You know, this this is real stuff. This is I'm not making this up. Um, when you've got millions and millions of pounds handed over to government cronies in PPE contracts and nothing happens. When you've got banks, some of which are household names, laundering billions of pounds for Mexican drug cartels and nothing happens. You've got all this, you know, what we call white collar crime. It's not white collar crime. It's just crime. It's no different to what someone like Danielle was doing. 
In fact, it's more insidious and more dangerous, I think. So when you've got all these examples set, you know, what are young people supposed to take from that? What are the rest of us supposed to take from that? Well, what they take from it is what Danielle did, which is, I'm going to go get my money. And I don't care how I do it, I'm going to get my money. You're not going to stand in a, in a shop for, for nine hours a day, earning nine quid an hour, when you've got this opportunity on your doorstep, when everyone else above you is doing exactly the same thing, but wearing a tie and with a briefcase. So I think we need much better messaging from, from you know, authorities and, and people in power. It's such a, an important point to make because what's going on right now is we've got a name and shame drug policy coming through, both from the Conservatives and Labour. But the thing is that they fail to mention is that we're, it's firmly on record the amount of cabinet members and shadow cabinet members that consume drugs, and yet their chances aren't being inhibited in life. It, and it always falls to people like Danielle that come from certain backgrounds that has the emphasis put on them. So it, would you say this is a class war as well? I think, well, the other thing I was going to say is, um, is while you've got that message, while, you, while they're, you've been bombarded with that messaging, at the same time being bombarded with messaging that's telling you to consume, that your, your standing in society is measured by what shoes you wear, by the car that you drive, by how big your house is, how much money you've got. You know, how different would our society be if your status was measured in terms of how much you care? You know, Henry Blake, who directed the County Lines film, he hit the nail on the head and said, we all need to care more if we're to solve this. And I'm going to ask you the same question, Danielle. So you're now in office, which, by the way, I completely, I would champion that. Please run for office. <laughs> uh, what would be your what testimony in how we can do things differently uh, what would you say to policymakers? I'm just saying, like, let's be more trauma-informed out here because this is not the right way. When We should not be criminalising people that are struggling. Like, let's just help them because I just think we, like, realistically, street drug dealers are the lowest, you know, in that food chain. We're the end of the line. It don't go any further. It stops with us. So, yeah, great, that's fine. Like, tackle drugs great amazing do tackle drugs but tackle you know the huge importers and things like that because we're just the we're the end of the line and we're the ones that are suffering we're the ones that are dealing with the violence that may come with that sort of profession um we're dealing with the, the everyday trauma so yeah when you've got maybe someone in a police station that has been found with a few heroin wraps on them I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it's it's, it's a criminal offence, do something, but I don't think jail is the, op is the right option here. Um, there's far too many, you know, small-time drug dealers in jail and not enough sexual assault um, perpetrators in prison. So I just think we're targeting the wrong things. And if we change society as a whole, maybe low-level drug dealers will not even get into it in the first place. Um and just be more, I just, I think it's a very aggressive approach they've got to like gangs, but let's look at the other side of it. Like these are people that, this is their family, this is their only support system. And yes, I'm not denying that there's not violence entrenched in that life, but I don't, I still think we need to be trauma informed when dealing with it instead of being like aggressive with arrests and stop and searches and things like that. Just as one more final wrap-up point, uh, 
the mental health thing runs right away through the book and especially with everything that you've been through and seen and you just mentioned there that because of an incident yesterday you know, it, it all came back uh may i ask what your mental health is like at the moment uh and is there is there a, is there ways that you can personally set about making things better for yourself? Uh, you know, how are you feeling basically? I'm fabulous. Like I'm good. Um, you know, I smile every day. I laugh every day. I've got passion for life. I want to make things. Like I want to make a great life for myself. Um, but I still like the whole not feeling emotions thing is is very real. I have zero emotions. Like nothing phases me nothing bothers me like literally nothing so it's just and that's quite it's still quite scary to feel nothing like I know it sounds great like oh you know I could go through the worst thing and not feel anything but it's actually quite scary um so yeah that's the only thing I'm trying to tackle at the moment but in terms of like life I'm in the best place I've ever been like and people have said to me oh because of your experience you know like are you scared to go outside are you scared of men and things questions like that and the answer is no like I you know I have a great partner I have great friends and I just I just hope that this book can maybe just go to a few people and you know open their eyes to what's going on on their doorstep and the end of the day just let's just all be kind to each other that's perfect. Well, thank you both so much for talking to me. I really, really want You're people welcome. to read this book. Is there any other points that you want to get in? Oh, so many points. There's so many to say, so much to say <laughs> yeah. on this topic. Like it's such a massive yeah. topic and there's so many elements to it. But yeah, I just, for me, like it was very hard to put my life in someone else's hands to write my story. And I'm just really thankful that um, Robin's done a great job and it's come across... The, the response I'm getting is that it's coming across very truthful and very um, sincere and that's what I wanted. I didn't ever want to feel like I'm bragging or that I'm a victim. I just wanted to say my truth as it was and yeah, I'm happy. I feel like the book has done that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in. Please go find Top Girl. You do need to read it for yourself because this podcast doesn't do it justice. It is really well written and that's all credit to Robin and it is really well told and that is all credit to Danielle. Her life story is cinematic. It really is. Thank you so much to both of you for participating in this podcast. And on the thank yous, thank you to Nikki, the executive producer of this show. He is incredible. He's the workhorse. He does everything. Thank you to the associate producers of John and Tristan. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for you, the listeners. Please click, like, share, subscribe, all of that things. It really helps us get the messaging out there. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the Artwork. Thank you to Scoobius Pip and the whole Distraction Piece and Network. We've got so much more to come on this podcast on Stop and Search. Please keep listening. It all helps. And we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Behind your How long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.